This is day 232 of our daily Bible reading. We will be reading the book of James today, chapters 1 through 5. Lord, Heavenly Father, as we come into your word this morning, help us to listen to your word carefully. And then, after we are done listening, that we may be doers of the word. Lord, so often we struggle with divided allegiance. But show us today the wisdom that you have for us. We need to believe that you are able to give us this wisdom, and that we should not doubt in you, Lord. We have plenty of doubts in ourselves, but not in you. Help us to see this clearly today as we go into your word. May you enlighten us and anoint the scripture today. Please bless the reading of this word in Jesus' name. Amen. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits, will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man 
does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and has gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and say, you sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves, and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you, and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and is in need of daily food, 
and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and the result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that, as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea, they are tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water 
produce fresh. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this and that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. 
all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job, and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. But your yes is to be yes, and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death 
and will cover a multitude of sins. Congratulations for completing James. That was quick, but man, there is so much in here that we could spend hours upon hours talking about. Let me hit some highlights, but this is really an important book to read, as it all is, but this one especially. There's so much in here on how to conduct ourselves, as well as how to see the world around us. And more specifically, how we should look at ourselves, because so often that is what we lack. We lack that self-awareness, or we lack that self-reflection. There are a few Jameses in the Bible, but which one is this? This is not the disciple James, the one that was the first person to die of the eleven. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. So as we know, Mary was a virgin when she was pregnant with Jesus, and Jesus was the firstborn of Mary and Joseph. But after that, they had more kids. And we read about four brothers that Jesus had, half-brothers, because God is the father of Jesus. And then there are some sisters too, but we don't know their names. But James is one of those brothers. It is mentioned in a couple of places that the brothers of Jesus did not believe that he was really God. They did not believe that he was the Messiah. And so often they tried to exploit his miraculous powers in order to get fame and power and influence. And they encouraged him to make himself more public so that they could get that attention and the accolades that come with it. And you see that even at the cross, they did not believe him. But it wasn't until after he rose from the dead and he went to James himself, then it appears that James started to believe. Now, James also has a full brother that wrote something in the Bible, and that's Jude. Jude is also a half-brother of Jesus, the direct, full-blooded brother of James. So this is the James that we're talking about here, and historically, there is documentation about him, and it's quite possible that we found him. There is a grave that was found in Jerusalem that says James on it, the brother of Jesus. And so it's very interesting that we may have actually found the body of this James. So it's fascinating. But it is said in historical documents that are outside the Bible that James was a bishop of the church in Jerusalem. So he was perhaps the head honcho of the Jerusalem church at one point. So that's interesting. And we can tell that he genuinely cares about the things of God because he wrote a letter that is very theologically rich. So let's read a few things that James said today. So his audience is to Jewish Christians because it says in verse 1, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. So we know that the 12 tribes represents Israel. And it talks about those that were dispersed, the ones that were being persecuted and threatened, and then they fled. Those were the ones that became Christian. And he starts off with a very interesting statement. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Trials are not fun. 
trials are not enjoyable, but we're supposed to be joyous when we're under trial. Why does he say that? Because in verse 3, it says that it produces something. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And what does endurance create? It creates completion. It creates full equipping. It creates perfect people, which lack in nothing. Now, to be completely clear, it doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect in a sinless way. Okay, So what it's talking about here is that you will be fully developed as a Christian. It's talking about you being fully matured as a Christian. Not saying that you will be literally perfect. Let's be clear about that. And here's something that is extremely important to understand, especially when it comes to the nature of prayer. Prayer is not meant to be a laundry list of your complaints or your requests, but instead it should be to glorify God, and really it should be about other people and other things other than yourself. But one thing that we can ask for that God will give us, and this is a promise he's making here, is if we ask him for wisdom, he promises he will give it to us, like it says at the end of verse 5. He loves to give generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. That is a definitive word there. However, there is a couple of conditions. He must ask in faith, right? He must have faith in God, first of all, but secondly, he must have faith that God is able to do it. And what's the other part? Without any doubting. Well, Lord, I don't think you're going to actually do it, but I'm going to throw a Hail Mary out there, and I'm going to see if you're going to answer it. I don't really think you can do it, Lord, but I'm going to ask anyway. What is wrong with that? It says here that those who doubt are like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. People unstable, unsteady being thrown around by the natural world around us. Verse 7, For that man ought not to expect to receive anything from the Lord. So if you have doubts, and you pray, and yet you have hesitations and unbelief, why would you expect God to answer you? You need to have complete confidence in the God that you're praying to, and then he will give you the wisdom that you need. And again, this is wisdom that you need. This is not what you are wanting. So sometimes you won't get exactly what you're looking for, but you'll get what you need. Those that pray with doubting are being referred to here as double-minded. Double-minded, the literal translation of that is to have a divided allegiance. Jesus said it best, right? One cannot serve two masters. So if you are at the point where you do not believe God can do it, then you're trusting in something else rather than God. And if you're trusting in something else, you shouldn't be surprised that God's not going to answer you because you are double-minded. And it should show in your life as well because you will be unstable in all of your ways. You can be at church and talk a big talk, but if your life looks chaotic, then obviously something is in conflict, and there is an 
instability somewhere that needs to be addressed. That's why I think it's so important to relate this with Hebrews chapter 12, like we talked about yesterday. When it comes to laying aside all the weights and sins that easily entangle us, so that we can run our race with endurance and fix our eyes on Jesus, that's why we do it. We do it because if we are holding back, if we are being weighed down, we are of divided allegiance. You are for God, but you're also for something else. And so how do you expect God to want to work in you if you don't believe that he can do it? You lack confidence or obedience in doing his will. You see, there is a personal responsibility involved in here. So don't forget that. Then it contrasts the poor and the rich, because the rich in the middle of their pursuits will fade away. It's empty. There's nothing you're going to get out of money that will last you forever. It has its purpose, but it should not be your aim, because those things are temporal, and it's not going to save you. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. What high position? The humility that he has. Because if you are humble, then God says that he will exalt you. That's a high position. And not only that, but being saved in general is a very high position. The highest of the high, because we are heirs of Christ Jesus, and we are going to be rulers in the next kingdom. That's fascinating. And so, yes, it is a very high position. So don't forget that. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. This is the same crown that Paul mentioned a couple of times, especially in 2 Timothy. He fought the good fight, he finished the race, he kept the faith, and he has the crown of life and the crown of righteousness waiting for him. Don't say when you're tempted that God is tempting you, because God does not tempt anyone, nor can he be tempted. But instead, what is it saying? That you are carried away by what's already inside you. So it's not that God is putting you in an impossible situation. But think about how Job was treated. God did not tempt him. God did not take away all those things from him. God did not afflict him with disease. God allowed Satan to do that in order to test the faith of Job and to prove Satan wrong. But he did not do it himself. So he may allow temptation to come to you, but he himself does not do it. And perhaps the biggest reason of all is if God does tempt people, then he is influencing you to do evil. And if God is influencing you to do evil, then he's not really good, right? He's not perfectly good. He's not perfectly moral. Therefore, he's not God. And that is in direct conflict of everything that the Bible says about him. So absolutely, he doesn't tempt you. Verse 15 reminds me of the story of when Eve was being tempted by Satan in the garden. Because when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. So you think of her looking at that fruit, and she's having the three base elements of temptation. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. And she let her lust get the best of her, and she ate, and she sinned. 
And what happened when she sinned? Then it produced death. Their eyes were open, they realized they were naked, and they were now allowing death and decay to enter into the world. So that's directly related to what we saw in the book of Genesis. Then we have a very definitive statement in verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. So often we're going to get deceived by things, or things are going to get put in front of us that are trying to lead us astray. Do not be deceived. But not only that, it says that every good thing given is from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. He's called the Father of lights because usually when I think of holiness, I think of light. And yes, he is light, and he is the light of the world. But now what it says that he has no variation or shifting shadow, what it's reinforcing is his immutability, his unable to change. He is not able to change. So this is simply reinforcing that truth. The second half of chapter 1 goes through the word that is implanted. What is the word? That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the word of God, the Bible. Right? And it's been implanted in us. We have the Holy Spirit of promise within us. And he has the gospel, and he will confess and reinforce the gospel. So we need to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of it. We need to be quick to hear, quick to listen, slow to speak, so we don't catch ourselves in our words or speak foolishly. And we need to be slow to anger. We need to be people of patience and wisdom. But not only that, but it says that we need to be doers of the word, not hearers only. Meaning that we know what the Bible says, but we're not ever doing it. That doesn't make any sense at all. He likens it to how you look at your natural face, the face of your birth in the Greek, and you're noticing your physical features. So if we're careless, we'll look in the mirror, and then you forget what you look like. That's basically the same thing as what it means for the man to look at the Word of God and not act like what the Bible says. That's the kind of foolishness he's referring to here. So we need to be effectual doers rather than forgetful hearers. And if we do that, the Lord will bless us in everything we do. Here's a very important piece of scripture when it comes to religion. If you think you're religious and yet you are not following the word of God, then it's worthless to you. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. Here's your definition. To visit orphans and widows in their distress. So we need to take care of the poor and the needy, right? The defenseless. And to keep oneself unstained by the world. That is to keep yourself pure. To keep yourself full of the truth. Rather than being influenced by the world systems and being corrupted in our thinking. That is how we maintain godliness. Then James directs us to not have an attitude of favoritism. We should not be partial. Why? Because God is not partial. So he gives some examples of what it looks like to be hypocritical and to be picking favorites based on appearance or by social status, things like that. 
And by doing so, we not only are insulting the Lord, but we are sinning actively. And then there's those that show partiality, and then they start judging people. There's a lot of judgy Christians in the world, unfortunately. And so we like to point fingers and say, this person is doing stuff wrong. But here's the reality of our situation. And this is very important. This is something that the Jews and the Pharisees never really understood. Verse 10, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. So everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? Paul said that in the book of Romans. So this is to reinforce that understanding. None of us can keep the law. That's the whole point. We cannot keep the law. That's why we need a Savior. Because by the law, we are condemned to death. But through our Savior, we are redeemed. That's why Jesus Christ needed to be in the world to save us. Because without him, we would be dead in our trespasses. The second half of chapter 2 is a hotly debated section of Scripture when it comes to the understanding about works and faith. So, does it mean here that you have to have works in order to be saved? Some think that's the case, but no, it is not. So, he poses a question here in verse 14. Can a dead spiritual faith save a person? No, it cannot. James is not saying here that we are saved by works, but that a faith that does not produce good works is a dead faith. It is a fake faith. It is not that the works themselves justify you in the sight of God, but much like Jesus said about those that bear fruit, right? Good trees produce good fruit. Bad trees produce bad fruit. Inaction and doing absolutely nothing is considered a bad fruit. So naturally, if you have the indwelt Holy Spirit, you will be encouraged and spurred into doing good works. They don't have to be grand things, but they are something. There should be some evidence in the way you live your life that you believe in Christ. So it should be a natural byproduct of your faith that you are producing good works. The aim is not to produce enough good works to earn your way into heaven. That is a false understanding of the Bible. Faith without works is dead, and works without faith is dead. Faith is what is necessary, but the works are proof. They are evidence of what you believe, and that is what is needed. Then he mentions here in verse 19 a very important piece of scripture as well. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. What is he saying here? He's saying that the unity of God. You know, we have one God, but there's three persons of the Trinity. And yet they always understood it that way because, again, Elohim, which is the word for God in our Bible, is a plural masculine noun. This is a deep theological study on that, the nature of the Trinity. We will never be able to fully understand it. But what he's saying here is that the demons themselves believe in God. 
So what does your belief in God have anything to do with anything if the demons believe and shudder? If the demons even understand this, and they're not going to heaven, then you saying that you believe in God but don't show it is just as useless. That's what he's trying to say here, is belief without the good deeds is no better than the belief that demons believe in God too. It's no different. And he uses Abraham as an example for this, that he had faith, but he proved his faith by walking in obedience with God and putting his only son on that altar to sacrifice him, as God told him to do. That's how he proved that his faith was not dead, by his works. The works didn't save him, but it was the faith that saved him. Chapter 3 talks about the tongue. The tongue is a small piece of our body, but it is so powerful when it comes to sin and to blessing and to cursing, all in the same place. And that's the one of the major points that he makes here, is that the tongue is powerful, and yet it is small, much like the rudder of a ship, or the bit in the mouth of a horse, or a small fire, a spark, that can start a whole forest fire. So it's the same kind of thing, that the tongue is small, but yet it can do great things. And so it's very important that we bridle our tongue because it has the destructive power of hell within it. We will bless God, and then we'll turn around and we will judge and hate people on earth, and yet they are made in God's image. So such stupidity in us when we do things like that. So his point is that we need to not be inconsistent in our speech. If we are going to bless, we need to bless. We need to speak goodness. If we're going to be evil and sinful, then it needs to match. You cannot be double-minded on this either. You can't live in the world of demons, and you can't live in the world of God. You can't have both. You can't be in the world, and you can't be of God either. This double-minded allegiance is not good, and it should not be hypocritical in our actions and in our speech either. That's why he's saying here, pick a side. Either speak curses or speak blessings, but you can't have both. Not as a child of God. Can you have salt water and fresh water come out of the same spring? No, and that's the point he's trying to make here. You can't do that. That's inconsistent, and that is not the way God intends it. And I like the end of chapter 3 here, because he talks about if wisdom is from God or if wisdom is from the earth. And what it produces will tell you everything. The things that are from God are pure and peaceable and gentle and reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. Those are all good things. But what does earthly wisdom look like? Jealousy, selfish ambition, arrogance, lying against the truth. All of this is demonic. It's selfish. And all of this stuff creates what? Disorder and every evil thing. Don't you see that in the world just escalating in that way? There's so much disorder. There's so much worldly wisdom, they are getting worse and worse by the day. 
So there is a stark contrast between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world, and that should be clearly evident. Then we go to chapter 4, where he talks about staying away from being a worldly Christian. So he warns us about pursuing pleasures as well as fighting amongst ourselves. And if we think that we're lacking something, it's because we haven't asked God. And if it's God's will for us to have it, he'll give it to us. But again, we need to ask without any doubting. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. Usually, why does God do anything? He does it to glorify himself as well as to do something for your good. So if it's neither of those things, usually the answer to your prayer will be no. It's not for your benefit, and it's not for God's glory. So therefore, there's no point for him to answer you. If you're praying so that you can get things for yourself out of selfish motives, then you're living a worldly life. And he warns you against that. He says that if you want to be friends with the world, you have to understand that the world is hostile toward God. And so if you're picking the side of the world, you're picking God's enemy. And therefore, if you want to pick God's enemy, you are an enemy. You do not want to be in the hands of an angry God, like the book of Hebrews said. Stay clear of that. We want to be as pure as possible, and we want to be obedient to the cross of Christ. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, like it says here. So, as a result, what is the solution? Like it says in verse 7, submit yourself to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So we need to resist him. We need to not let him have his way. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So it's saying that you approach him first. You draw near to God, and then he will draw near to you. God sometimes will just do it on his own, but it requires our participation too. He wants that relationship with us. So why wouldn't we want to spend time with him? Why wouldn't we want to trust him? Why wouldn't we want to draw near to him? He is our fortress and he is our shield, right? So he will protect us from Satan. Why wouldn't you want to stay near him? Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. We also, to finish chapter 4, should not be arrogant in our plans assuming that we're going to be able to do whatever we want. If we are really children of God, then we desire to see what God wants in our lives and where he wants to direct us. And so we may have our plans, right? And we'll go here and spend a year in this city and do this and that in order to make money. But yet you make these plans, but you didn't even ask God, first of all. But secondly is you assume everything's going to go according to plan but you don't know what your life is going to be like tomorrow. So instead, you need to ask the Lord, if you will this, Lord, then we will do this and that. And then he leaves us with a very important verse that I use all the time in my personal life. To one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, it is sin. And that is something that we need to keep in the forefront of our mind. You know the right thing to do, and you choose not to do it. You are actively sinning. That is that 
accountability that God has put in us. Then in chapter 5, he gives us some final exhortations here. First of all, he says not to pursue riches. That's basically what the whole first section's about. We need to be people of patience, because it is all in God's timing, not in ours. Not only that, but the coming of the Lord is near. So therefore, we need to make sure that we have taken proper inventory of our lives, and we are ready for his return. Can we say that with confidence? That if Christ was going to return today, we would be ready, and we would happily receive him without any regrets? I don't think we're there yet. But that's the aim, remember? So we need to make sure that we are very patient for his return, but also in the meantime, we're doing what we're supposed to. And then he concludes this section with swearing. Don't swear. And this isn't necessarily bad words, right? We should not be saying any curse words or anything like that. But he's talking about making vows, making swears. I swear to God that I'm telling you the truth. You don't want to do that. There's no benefit into doing that. It's really, this verse is talking about flippant or blasphemous vows. Again, if we use the name of the Lord in vain, that is a direct conflict with the Ten Commandments. And so if we use his name casually and we use it incorrectly, improperly, in such a dishonorable fashion, then there is going to be consequences with that. And we need to make sure that if we mean yes, then let your yes be a yes. And let your no be no. Be very clear. Be very direct in your statements. So that way people don't have to guess as to what you're trying to say. Then he ends chapter 5 by talking about the power of prayer. Prayer can help you get well. Prayer can be used to celebrate. Prayer can be used for those that are in trials and in struggles. And this is where a false understanding of how to pray for the sick and the dying was instituted by the Catholic Church in this section. So be careful what you read into this. But that's, it's not saying that you have to do this as last rites or anything like that. But it does say that we're supposed to confess our sins to one another, to hold each other accountable, as well as to reconcile with each other. If you have bitterness towards someone, you need to resolve it. And sometimes it's telling them straight up that you have some sort of bitterness so that you can move on. Holding on to it's not going to accomplish anything. It's not saying that you confess all your sins to a priest. That's not what it's saying. So I hope that's not what you got out of this, when because that's not what is intended. And finally, he says that the effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. We've seen that throughout the Bible in multiple places, that through prayer, great things happened. And he uses Elijah as an example. He prayed that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain for three and a half years until he called for the rain to come back. That is faith. That's the kind of faith we need to have in prayer. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the book of James. Tomorrow, we will be going and completing 1 Peter. Until then, thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.